The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. There's a beloved Welsh folk tale that takes place in the 13th century about Prince Llewellyn the Great, who had a palace at Beggillert. And as the prince, he loved spending time in the surrounding countryside hunting. And he had a favorite dog named Gellert. And one day he called the dogs to the hunt, blowing his horn. But Gellert, he didn't come. So Prince Llewellyn went hunting without him. When the prince returned from the hunt, he was greeted by Gellert, who came bounding toward him his jaws dripping with blood, and there was blood on his coat, and the prince had a horrible, terrible thought. Where was his one-year-old son? He ran to the nursery, and there was blood all over the sheets, blood splattered on the walls, and he searched but could not find his son, so in a fit of rage, he took out his sword and plunged it into Gellert's heart. And as the dog howled in his death agony, Llewellyn heard a child's cry coming from underneath the upturned cradle. It was his son, completely unharmed. And beside the child was an enormous wolf. As the legend says, tremendous even in death. And suddenly, Llewellyn realized the blood on the sheets was Gellert's blood. The blood on his coat was Gellert's blood. And he cried out, what have I done? He'd slain the savior of his family because he hadn't known what he'd done. When we hear a story like this, it's funny that emotions will start to rise up about a dog. About treating a dog dishonorably because he hadn't known how honorable he truly was. And now you may be wondering, Pastor Brian, why would you tell such a terrible story Why have you made me feel this way? Here's why. This is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who says, I had no idea what he had done for me. How in the world... Can I go on living my life my own way? How can I treat him as I often do, as an enemy? I can't. What have I done? And what must I do? And we're cut to the heart. Being a Christian means that we're cut to the heart. And there's a great realization of who Jesus really is. And the terrible blood that's on our hands. 
It's not just how some people 2,000 years ago must have felt. It's us. It's every person since then who realizes that Jesus is the Savior and we've treated him terribly. So it's right for us to feel this way. And if we can feel this way about a Welsh folktale concerning a dog, we should feel this way and so much more about the greatest, most faithful, personal hero to us. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, stir our emotions. Not for the sake of simply being emotional, not for the sake of manipulation, but to give us a sense of reality, the reality of Jesus and our faith. Lord, give us a, a taste of this terrible realization, one that everyone will experience, an experience resulting in either grateful praise like Peter or in hopeless despair, like Judas. Lord, help us to have a greater realization of our guilt. Not for the the sake of staying there, but for the sake of rightly appreciating the honor and perfection of Jesus and what he's done for us, so that we might not neglect such a great salvation, so that we might better appreciate And value this time of coming together on a Sunday and singing to you and giving to you and partaking of these elements at your table, reminding us of what you've done and the hope that we have in you, reminding, Lord, each other of our great purpose and calling as the body of Christ. So, Lord, help us. Help us to connect with this first crowd at Pentecost so that we might rightly see Jesus, in whose name we now pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, there are Bibles on the table in back. Please grab one of those. Take one if you need one. If you remember the day of Pentecost we've been reading about, the ascended Christ has poured out the Holy Spirit upon his apostles and the disciples who are gathered with them. And then this great crowd had gathered and they're amazed, they're perplexed at what has occurred as they hear these Galileans speaking in their own native languages. And Peter explains what they've witnessed. He began by quoting Joel's prophecy about the last days and the coming great and magnificent day of the Lord. This prophecy that ends with a a gracious invitation that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And now we pick it up with verse 22. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Peter continues, verse 22, saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, being a part of a biblical church, a new covenant church, a truly spirit-filled church has to do with Jesus. Always Jesus. But here's a question that I want you to deeply consider. Deeply because sadly Western Christianity has failed us in so many ways. Here's here's the question. Which Jesus? Which Jesus do you know? Now when some of you hear this, you may think that I'm talking about cults who present themselves as Christian and yet they're not at all Christian because their Jesus is only a man, he's only a created being. And so their Jesus is different than the biblical Jesus who claimed and was proved 
to be God, eternally existing with the Father, actually able to save sinners. And asking this question, I'm not thinking of this. But instead, I'm thinking of the various ways that Western Christianity has trivialized this Jesus that we read about in Scripture. Trivialized in that he's just a subject for bumper stickers and wristbands. Being presented as a, as a friend who requires no change in us. That he loves and accepts us just the way we are. So instead of being our, sa- our Lord and Savior, he's a, he's a support system or an example. And this concerns me because that Jesus will not stand against the hurricane force winds of our culture. And the rising tide that will devastate such superficial, man-centered thinking. Let's face it. The, the children of today are growing up in a different world. Different. I don't think it's coming back. Whatever nostalgia that you may have. I don't think that's coming back. This is a different world. Our children are growing up in a different world, a world that says it promotes tolerance and yet is increasingly hostile to their Christian faith. A world with incredible, incredible influence through media and technology and entertainment. A world that's, that's changing the beliefs and values of those who claim to be Christian. Has our salt lost its savor? Are we enhancing or preserving anything in this wicked time? If the Jesus of America is presented as a life coach or therapist, then yes, our salt has lost its savor. And we will not be able to stand against the growing evil of our day. We need to know Our children and grandchildren need to know the Jesus who Peter preaches about. This Jesus, who is an incredible hero. This Jesus who so many will sadly tuck away until next Sunday. This Jesus who is our only hope of salvation. This Jesus who whose church exploded in worldwide growth from a small, incapable, uneducated, fearful bunch of disciples. This Jesus whose church will continue. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not being fatalistic. This Jesus whose church will continue because he said it will continue. That the gates of hell will not prevail. It will stand against the gates of any hellish culture. Ultimately. But only this Jesus. Not the moralistic therapeutic deism of our time which gathers large crowds to entertain and give tips for living. That Jesus will not compete against the world, what the world offers our kids. 
But the real Jesus will always be a far surpassing treasure that can withstand any of Satan's schemes. So parents and grandparents, don't be afraid. But look to and give your kids the hero of the Bible. And pray that God helps them see this Jesus. Who is worthy of our worship, even if it costs us our lives. More and more I realize that attending a Sunday service is not enough. That being a part of a, maybe one of our small groups, it's not enough. We need to prioritize daily time in God's word. Filling our minds with biblical truth found in, in, in good books. And teaching this, teaching this to our children. Speaking of good books, Pastor Jim shared with me a quote from one of our favorite authors, Randy Alcorn, who said, Over nearly four decades in my church, a church that has always taught and emphasized God's word, I've seen a noticeable, even startling reduction in the average person's grasp of biblical truth. It's possible for someone to hear Bible-based sermons as we regularly do at my church, while at the same time adopting a worldview that is less and less biblical. This happens because most, most church people spend little time studying God's truth during the week. Compare the time spent reading scripture and great books that teach biblical truth with the amount of time spent watching television and reading social media, both of which often exemplify an anti-Christian worldview. What chance does a 40-minute sermon a week have, no matter how biblical, when it must try to correct 40 to 70 hours of input that's contrary to scripture? It's impossible unless that 40 minutes of Bible teaching is a vehicle to get people into studying and discussing God's word and reading quality books in their own discretionary time. You know, there's, there's no magic pill. There's no new trick, no new technique to growing in Christ. No, what's new is that we're living in a new time. A very different time. A much more serious threat. And so we need to be much more intentional with with our input. Lest we find ourselves compromising and being more susceptible to the father of lies who wants to devour you. Something I want to point out this morning is the, the weightiness of the true Jesus and his gospel. And it's weighty because the context, the context involves a very heavy burden of guilt. And it's important for us to understand this, this weight so that we can rightly appreciate just how incredible and freeing and refreshing and joyful is God's forgiveness to us. Having that deep sense of, 
of being cut to the heart enhances the realization of God's redeeming love for us. It's a weightiness that that deserves much more than a Sunday morning. It deserves the kind of appeal Paul gives in Romans 12, who said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Are we being conformed to a narcissistic world, culture, or transformed in our minds because we're feeding on biblical truths which are then tested in hard situations. Like Pastor Dale just described with Brian. Tested. That kind of trust in God doesn't just come out of nowhere. We need to be in God's Word. We need to be reading good books and listening to godly instruction. We need a God-centered theology that knows that He is sovereign in horrible situations like has been described, and yet to be able to say, God is good and I trust Him. When we read a passage like ours this morning, imagine the weightiness experienced by these first century Jews who are, who are gathered on the steps of the temple, only, only weeks from shouting, Hosanna! And then quickly shouting, crucify Him! We can imagine how they must have felt as Peter here confronts them with the truth, with the reality of what they've done and that judgment is coming. We can imagine it for them and their incredible need for mercy for a a savior. But what about you? What about us? What's our understanding of of this Jesus in relation to our lives? So here's another question for you. Why are you a Christian? Sadly, and I hope this isn't any of you, many people describe their faith as a support system, as therapy, or a, a method of personal growth. And so being a Christian is about morality or or being a conservative or being a socially minded progressive or as a means to self-improvement. Some describe Jesus as, as meeting their need for a friend. A friend who will always have their back and encourage them. Some have a life coach Jesus. A Jesus of excellence or... A Jesus to help the depressed and discouraged. A Jesus who will guide us in our relationships. Helping us find a spouse. Making us a good husband or a good wife. A good parent. A good friend. And some of these may be wonderful benefits as a result of a relationship with Jesus. But truly, the reason to become a Christian should begin with our being cut to the heart. 
with that realization of dread, deep dread, in that we've treated the hero, the the true savior, this Jesus as a villain to be pierced through. And being a Christian has to do with a, a response that says, oh no, what have I done? What shall I do? If you've just been coming to church out of tradition, or to make your spouse happy, or to get some tips on life and parenting, if you're young and you only come because you have to, if that's it, you need to be cut to the heart as you realize your guilt and that God's terrible wrath is hanging over you. And that Joel's description of the great day of the Lord, it's coming and there's no avoiding it. These words, what shall we do, are not asking for practical steps in joining the club. They're not, tell me Peter, what shall I do to become a better, more successful person? Give me some steps. What shall I do? (laughs) No. They're crying out, cut to the heart, saying, Ah, we've pierced the hero, the Savior, the one who is both Lord and Christ, Almighty God and Messiah. Peter, please tell us, is there any hope for us? What shall we do? And praise God, there's good news for them and for us. For God would be just, wouldn't he? Just to say tough. It's not as if I've been secretive about this. Now that you're desperate and without hope, don't come crawling to me. You'll get what you deserve. No, praise God for his glorious grace. There's gospel. There's good news. As Peter replies with what we all need to do, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You too can be forgiven. It's not too late to repent. Repent, meaning that you you turn from your sin, that you confess and apologize for your sin. Your sin that pierced the true hero. And instead of pursuing an ongoing life of sin, you also repent. You also change your mind about Jesus. You see him for who he truly is. Your savior. The one you trust and commit the rest of your life to. And this exalted Jesus will also pour out his spirit upon you. You too will have the gift of the Holy Spirit. In light of such good news, God gives you the privilege also in the text mentions baptism. A sign and seal of his promise to you as you are identified with Christ and his new covenant community, the church. What a great blessing baptism is. 
I hope you see this. I hope if you're a believer and you've never been baptized that you'll see this and in a sense repent of your wrong attitude about baptism. It's what happened to me. I grew up in a Baptist church. I avoided being baptized because of all sorts of fears. And then one day, because I started getting into some really good biblical books, I was around 20, I read a book that pointed out that Jesus commands us to be baptized. And it hit me, this is not optional, and I'm being disobedient to my Lord. I quickly decided to put aside any fear and to get baptized. And back then, my greatest fear was public speaking and being up in front of people. So I get it. That's most people's reasons for not wanting to be baptized. But it's the hero. It's your Savior. It's your Lord who commands it of you. Don't be afraid. What a great honor. What a great privilege to be identified with him. To be recognized as being a part of the body of Christ with all of the blessings of being in this new covenant community. So, as you've heard, we're planning to do baptisms on Sunday, October 16th. So I hope you're going to take that seriously. I hope that you'll come and, and talk with me or talk with one of the elders so we can explain what this means. But I want you to see it as a, as a great honor to be identified with Jesus, to have this sign and seal which points to faith in Jesus and being a part of this community, that this is available to you, that this is commanded of you. So, so talk with us about it. It's important to rightly see Jesus. And Peter's sermon gives us some important truths. Three times he uses this phrase, This Jesus. We need to know this Jesus as a matter of salvation and to rightly share him with others. So quickly, I'm just going to point out who this Jesus is in our text. This Jesus is attested to, certified, authenticated by God the Father. Verse 22. What we see in verse 22 is that Jesus... He's truly human, and that God verified who this man is, and that he was not only a man, but the very Son of God, the Messiah, the one whom Jesus claimed to be. God attested to this at his baptism, remember? With the Spirit descending upon him like, like a dove, and God's audible voice from from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And God enabled Jesus. He did mighty works and wonders and signs through him in their presence so that they would know Jesus speaks for God. He speaks the truth. This is the point of those miracles. The reason for these miracles. Yes, God is compassionate and kind, but ultimately, when you see these great miracles and wonders and signs, ultimately, 
They're signs. They're communicating something. They're communicating to the people in a prophet-like fashion. Listen to this man. This man has the authority of God. He speaks for God. This is my son. These signs are just like God the Father saying, this is my son, listen to him. And Nicodemus understood this. That's why he said to Jesus, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. As compassionate and kind as a physical healing may be, showing them who Jesus is is infinitely more loving. So this Jesus didn't act on his own, but was attested to or authenticated by God through these wonders and signs and miracles. Second, this Jesus was delivered up by God. God the Father sent his only son, not with options that depended upon the response of the people of Israel but according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Definite, planned, known before creation itself, before sin entered into his creation, it was the definite plan, not the likely plan, or the possible or potential or even probable plan of God. Definite. God does not guess. God does not react to man's free will. God writes his story. He is absolutely sovereign over all that occurs. Revelation 13.8 describes a book with names written in it. A book written before the foundations of the world. Before creation itself. Before Adam's sin. This book was written with these names written in it. And the name of this book is really interesting. It has a long name. It's called The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. And what this tells us is that God had a plan. There was a covenant of redemption within the Godhead. Planning to glorify His grace by sending a lamb who must be slain in order to give life to those that he has chosen to write in this book. The Lamb is Jesus. God the Son. And this is the definite plan of God. That sin would be allowed to enter into his creation. That man would need a Savior. And that Jesus would be that sacrificial Lamb delivered up by God for sinful man to be... For sinful man who did the most unjust, wicked act in all of human history. It's an incredible truth. Hard, if not impossible, for us to fully comprehend. But it's clearly the revelation of God. The sovereign will of God cannot be thwarted. And this truth gives us unshakable hope. This is the God that you want to have. This is, the, this is who God is. It's glorious. The sovereign will of God cannot be thwarted. And so God's promises to us in Christ are wonderful and great. And you can have absolute confidence in them. 
This Jesus was both delivered up by God and yet man is responsible for killing him. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are not at odds with each other because God is great enough to plan it all for his glory. Third, this Jesus was raised by God. And I love how Peter describes it. It's in the language of labor pains, giving birth. Jesus was dead in the tomb and his resurrection is described here as being like a birth. Labor pains result in a birth. There's no holding it back, right? In fact, concerning this Jesus, it's impossible for life not to be birthed from the tomb. Actually, impossible. Because God ordained it. God spoke through David as a prophet that the one at the Father's right hand, this Jesus, will not be abandoned to Hades or, or the place of the dead. That his body will not decay or, or see corruption. It's the promise of God and God cannot fail. It's his absolute guarantee and so truly it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. People struggle with the miracle of the resurrection. Um, it's a lot more, a lot more difficult to, to think of that not happening in light of who this Jesus is. Death, death is the penalty for sin, and this Jesus was without sin. And since God is just, How could he condemn a righteous man? Yes, he took our sin upon himself, paying our penalty through his death, but he must be raised because in himself he is righteous. He is sinless. It's impossible for God to be unjust. Understanding this Jesus means that the resurrection, it's not a hard thing for us to believe, but truly the only thing that could occur. Everything we hold to is based on this. So if someone were to believe in a Jesus who wasn't raised, then that Jesus will not and, in fact, cannot save them. That person should only be pitied as a fool. But this Jesus, whom Peter preaches, is raised. He is ascended. And our hope is secure. Fourth, This Jesus had witnesses. Peter Peter preached this. Jesus was with them and many others after his resurrection, giving them proof, making them witnesses to his resurrection. They saw him. They, They touched him. They ate with him. They talked with him. He taught them. They continued to learn from him. And they watched him ascend into the sky, into glory. And Peter summed this up in Second Peter 1, saying, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Fifth, this Jesus 
God has made both Lord and Christ. Jesus is Lord. And David again prophesied concerning his earthly descendant in a very unusual way. Unusual because no king would ever refer to a mere earthly descendant as my Lord. Unless, of course, he's a greater, he's greater. And the only way that he can be greater is if he's the eternal king, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, the one given all authority, the one who ascended to God's right hand, the one who will judge all people, the one who is divine, the promised Christ or Messiah. There are those today who believe they can have Jesus as their Savior without submitting to Him as their Lord, but that is just ridiculous. He is both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, the only one able to save, is according to God, both Lord and Christ, both Master and Messiah. Lastly, this Jesus is said to be The one you crucified. Like those who crucified this Jesus, we too have dishonored him. We have misunderstood him. It's our sin that nailed him to the cross. And like Prince Llewellyn, the realization of who our Savior is and how we've pierced him should cut us to the heart and cause us to cry out, what shall we do? And praise God for his glorious grace. There's hope in Jesus. If you haven't followed Peter's counsel, then today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. While there's still time, repent Turn from your sin. Change your mind about this Jesus. And you will be saved. And for those who've already done so, this Jesus is forever worthy of your praise. Forever worthy of our trust. Forever, each day, worth reading about. Studying to know. Praying that the Holy Spirit will continually enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see God's glory in the face of this Jesus, our only Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, please bless this time of worship. Please work in our hearts So that we will not be complacent, not be casual or blind to the reality of this Jesus we see in your word. Help children to quickly see and own their faith. To grow more and more in love with your son. Help us as a church to encourage an admiration and worship of Jesus. A worship that is not just on Sundays, but one that drives us to your word and renews our thinking, changes our attitude and behavior. Lord, making us humble servants to those around us. A worship that results in love for one another, hope 
and not fear. And a greater concern for your kingdom as we share this Jesus with those around us. Lord, bless the missionaries who are a part of this church family. Give them strength and joy and increasing fruit. Thank you that we have the privilege of partnering with them in the gospel. May Jesus be exalted, we pray, in his great name. Amen.